This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Geraldine Brooks, author of the novels Caleb's Crossing, Year of Wonders, People of the Book, March, and The Secret Chord. Brooks grew up in Sydney, Australia, and worked as a reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Wall Street Journal, where she covered crises in the Mideast, Africa, and the Balkans. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her novel, March. Her latest book, The Secret Chord, tells the story of King David in the Second Iron Age in Israel. Brooks is known for historical fiction. We began the interview discussing how she decided to write about David when her son began playing the harp. So it was taking him to his lessons. Uh, we had rented him just a, a small hop, and then, but when he went to his lessons with his musician teacher, she had a magnificent concert instrument, and he looked so tiny compared to this big hop. And I guess that's what put me in mind of that other long ago boy harpist. And I started thinking about David and the snatches of his story that I knew. And I went back to uh, the Bible and started reading it, and I realized that what I didn't know was even more interesting. I think of David as the strong man with a slingshot and a stone. Can you talk about the image of him with the harp? That's just one of those images, those iconic images that's just out there. I I guess, you know, I was a fine arts major, and there are so many beautiful um, old master's paintings of David, and many of them portray him with a harp. So it was just something that was totally... And also, he's he's really quite noted as the originator of music therapy because he's he's asked to play the harp when King Saul is going through periods of mental distress. And the harp was one of the things that would bring Saul back to himself, the music. So I always found that interesting, that you had... David as the warrior with the slingshot was one way he was always represented, and then with the harp is the other. David's story is the earliest biography in literature, and we see him from childhood to extreme old age. What was your experience of trying to chronicle the life of this man that has already been written about? It was unnerving. The further I got into it, the more unnerved I got because... Outside of the Bible story, he doesn't really exist in the historical record. And I hadn't been quite aware of that. I thought there must have been archaeological evidence or writings about him. If not, you know, the Hebrews weren't that organized and and um, and bureaucratic to have great archives at that time. But certainly the Egyptians were and the Mesopotamians were. And it's it's striking that he doesn't really figure in any of the histories of the neighboring countries. So I had to research it in a completely different way. Usually I deep dive into archives and read everything I can in the voices of the time that I'm writing about, the letters and journals and court documents, but there were none of those resources with this story. So it was a very uh, different style of research, and I did it by uh, taking my younger son, who was 10, and going to Israel and visiting all the places associated with David, and as far as possible doing what he might have done, like herding sheep and staying in a goat head tent in the desert encampment. And we spent an afternoon riding camels, and then I found out later that that was uh, a sore backside for nothing because there were no camels in 
Second Iron Age Israel, <laughs> and mules were the things we should have been riding. What's the balance between what you imagined and what you found in what biographical information there was? You know, so I, you have to make a, a determination. Are you going to treat the biblical account as the spine of the story? Are you going to take it on face value? And that's what I did. So I follow the line of the life as we have it in the scriptures. But what is interesting is, you know, that's it's beautifully uh, told story, but it's very uh, incident rich, and it's it's you know one damn thing after another more or less. So what I I needed to do as a novelist was open the viewfinder, reimagine it, uh, give backstories to the other characters because everything is only described in as far as it. it had an impact on David. So I wanted to switch the point of view and say, well, how did David's actions have an impact on the women in his life? And of course, the Bible is a very blokey kind of a book. It's always from the male perspective. And you're lucky if you're a woman in the Bible, if you even get your name noted. I mean, we don't know Noah's wife's name. We don't know Lot's wife's name. Um, but David's wives do have names, and they have personalities, and they have individual stories, even though they're told in a very abbreviated way. So I took what I knew from being a Middle East correspondent for so many years um, and having a particular interest in the women of the region, and I thought about all the women I knew who live in patriarchal, theocratic societies today, where they don't have any public power at all and where their lives are often quite precarious. And I thought, well, that's not too dissimilar to David's wife's situation. So let me draw on what I know about how these women wielded private power. Um, And I had met Ayatollah Khomeini's wife, Hadijah, and I had spent time with Queen Noor in Jordan as well as numerous other women who had to be very canny and duck and weave in order to have any kind of a significant um, say in in the direction of their destiny. And so I drew on them to help me create David's Wives. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Geraldine Brooks. Her latest novel is called The Secret Chord. Did you know much about David before you started this? No, not really. I think like all of us, I had the the images in my mind from the the art that he's inspired. I knew about the Psalms and I knew he was, you know, allegedly the author of the Psalms, these beautiful poems that are still uh, in print after 3,000 years. And, you know, as writers, we all should be so lucky to have our words endure like that. But, you know, basically I knew the the cliche elements of his story, the David and Goliath battle, you know, which, I mean, we hear that phrase probably every day in a sports context or a business or politics. But um, I, you know, I, I would take these things that we think we know, and then I would go and reinvestigate it and say, well, what really happened? Was the guy really a giant? Was David really a boy? What was an army? Why were they fighting? And and it turns out that, you know, we have this image of these two great armies ra- ranged against each other. We have a kind of a medieval picture in our mind. Uh, and we have to strip that away and go back to an Iron Age picture 
and realize that when you talk about um, this time period, there are only about 45,000 people inhabiting the whole region that's now Israel, Syria, and part of um, Jordan. So you have to make it much sparser. And really, what they were fighting about was cattle rustling. I mean, the the Philistines that the Hebrew tribes were, were fighting against were better organized, better armed, city-dwelling people who had the advantage of being able to trade with the um, more advanced societies of the Mediterranean. And the Hebrews were the hill people who were just agricultural um, herdsmen. And so what was going on was the city dwellers would come and steal their sheep and steal their harvest. And really, that was what it was all about. So it's it's kind of a a much more um, gritty and real portrayal of what was going on. What surprised you the most once you started writing or when you finished about David's life or something even that became fictional in your book that surprised you? Well, the thing that surprised me and that helped me find the voice for the novel is that the Book of Chronicles tells us that there is a missing book. There was supposed to be a book of Nathan that tells the story of David's life from first to last. And it's cited in Chronicles that you could find more about David in the book of Nathan. And yet we don't have that book. It's been lost. So that was surprising and intriguing because Nathan, as he's portrayed in the books we do have, the books of Samuel, he's the guy who's fearless about castigating David, even when David's the king and all-powerful Nathan will come and tell him he's sinned and tell him that, you know, he's, you know, basically tells him he sucks. And I thought, well, what would that guy have written if we had his book? What more would we know about David? So Nathan's my narrator, and I tell the story through his eyes. This book is not linear, meaning it does not go from birth to death in David's life. How did you decide where to start and how to structure the novel? So I wanted to start it at this uh, Turning point, a very important point in David's life. Uh, he's at the height of his power, but he's become so important to the newly emerged nation that he's forged out of the often fractious Hebrew tribes. He's brought them all together. He's getting them to recognize that they're one people. And then he goes off to, to war, and he almost gets himself killed, and his generals say to him, you can't do this anymore, you're too important. So you have to stay behind and we'll do the fighting. And he's not happy with that. That makes him very unsettled about uh, his leadership. And so that's the point that his story begins. And then we go back and forth as uh, Nathan tries to piece together his life story for us, for this missing book of Nathan that uh, the secret chord really is trying to recreate. Did you think when you started writing it that it would be so bloody and full of war? I knew that, yeah. It, it's a very, very harsh time. But, you know, what's become tragically apparent is it still is, you know? I mean, you, I, I started out three years ago thinking, oh, it's so hard to write about all this violence. But in those three years, the violence that ISIS has perpetrated is every bit as barbarous. So it's dispiriting to realize how little we as human beings have changed, how little we've matured as moral beings in 3,000 years. Because you had to write so much war and and gore, which 
I mean, your gory scenes were really great. Is that a skill that you've sort of honed over time about what it's like to put your sword into someone and dig out their entrails? Well, you know, I was a war correspondent for a number of years, and unfortunately I saw the aftermath of some pretty terrible fighting. And even though the weapons are different today, the effect on the human body is not so different. So it it's hard to revisit those memories. But I think if you're going to write about these historical periods, you can't really avert your eyes from it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Geraldine Brooks. Her latest novel is called The Secret Chord. Can you talk about David as a flawed leader? He is considered great by so many of his followers then and now, but he's also fighting to unite his nation. Yeah, no, his duality, I think, is what has made him so compelling and so inspiring to artists throughout the millennia, that he can't be put in a box. The scripture doesn't even try to do that. You know, this is not hagiography. This is a this is a totally clear-eyed portrait of a very flawed individual. But what's interesting is, you know, we're told what he does and how reprehensible it is, but we're also told he's a man after God's own heart. And unlike most very powerful people, when he is confronted with his wrongdoing, he admits it, he accepts it, and he tries to make amends for it. And he accepts the consequences that flow from it, you know, even when they're incredibly tragic and painful. I think that, you know, as much as some of what, much of what he does is deplorable, you all, it, there's also these admirable qualities that he has. And you know, the the title of the book is drawn from the Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah. And it comes from the very first line. They say there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. And that idea of him as a great artist and a great musician and a poet sits alongside him as this ruthless warrior. And at the end of the song, there's a verse that says, there's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter which you heard, the holy or the broken. Hallelujah. And I think that idea of somebody who is both holy and broken is a very powerful one because really it describes the human condition. We're all a mixture of the light and the dark. I felt like as you portrayed him when he was younger and took these cities, like when he took Nathan's village and killed everyone except for Nathan, he didn't. He, he seemed like it was more a matter of business. And then as he got older and he had children and he had to deal with the consequences of his own children's actions, even casting out his children or seeing his children dead, he became, I think, just much more aware of the consequences of his power. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, he makes the unselfish decision to leave Jerusalem when um, when his son Absalom is trying to usurp him. And he knows if he stays in the city, many people will die. So he leaves, even though it would have been easier to defend the city. So, um, yeah, I think he does mature and uh you know, develop more humanity. And, and and then, you know, he's he's told that, you know, he can't build the temple because he's too bloodstained. And yet, you know, he had to do those things to, to get into the position where it was even possible to think about building the temple. But what 
happens is that, you know, when Solomon comes to the throne, he doesn't, the people don't have to fight anymore because David has secured a period of peace for them. And so, you know, the fruits of of what David did um, are enjoyed by the people under his successor. So you mentioned earlier the women, and David had many wives, and they all came to him in very different ways. You know, one was uh, through a political partnership, one was through someone who he ransacked her village, but his the one who was the mother of, of Shlomo, of Solomon, Bathsheba, was one of his warrior's wives, and he took her one night and raped her and then had to eventually kill the warrior because she was pregnant. So this was probably the beginning of some of his worst bloodshed in terms of turning against one of his loyal soldiers, raping this woman and getting her pregnant. But I'm interested in their relationship because towards the end of her life, she really did serve him. Part of that, I'm sure, was for her son. But can you talk about their relationship? So, yeah, I mean, if you read the biblical account, male commentators have said she seduced him, which really drives me crazy because there's no way to read an account of what happened and call her a seductress. You know, she was preyed upon by this much older, much more powerful man. So, you know, that was one of the things I wanted to do in this story was to tell these stories from a woman's point of view and flip the script on on the understanding that is, you know, the way these stories are commonly portrayed. But I do think it's significant that as Nathan is there at the end of David's life, so is Bathsheba. And that means that this relationship that began in, you know, assault and in in terrible betrayal of, of David's loyal general who's off fighting a war on his behalf, a highly highly principled man uh, who's murdered, essentially, to cover up David's adultery. Um, Out of that unpromising beginning, some kind of a relationship is forged between these two, between David and Bathsheba. And it, it, it indicates that there was a real intimacy, that this lust turned into a real intimacy that she's the wife who's there at the end of things, his, his most uh, important wife and, and the one who's going to be the mother of the next king. So for me, the challenge was to fill in the void between those two things because the Bible has nothing to say about her after the adultery that has such terrible consequences and the end of his life when she's there asking him to put their son on the throne. So I had to fill in, like, how did this woman take this hand, this really bad hand that she'd been dealt, and turn it into um, an exercise of private power where she becomes somebody of significance, indeed a kingmaker. So that was fun. How, um, if at all, did writing this change you or your perceptions of the Old Testament? Well, it made me more uh, aware of the beauty of the biblical Hebrew account because I was raised on something very similar to the King James Bible, which is beautiful, but it's beautiful in a very highly elaborate style, you know, almost a Shakespearean level of poeticism, whereas the biblical Hebrew is beautiful in a very austere way. So it's like the difference between uh, Amone and Amondrian or an Ionic capital and a Corinthian capital. 
And I got a new appreciation for the less is more austerity of the Hebrew telling of the story. What was your religious upbringing? I was raised uh, Catholic. We, we, uh, we were from an Irish Catholic background, and I actually went to convent school all the way through high school. But uh, as a teenager, I started to have a lot of questions about the treatment of women in the church. And uh, I got fairly outraged about it, and so I kind of fell out of organized religion for a very long time. And it was only when I fell in love with a guy and and found out that he was Jewish um, that when we decided to get married, I thought, I don't want to be the end of the line for a family that's endured through the Holocaust and the Russian pogroms and goodness knows what other crises that have beset the Jewish people. So I decided to convert so that our family would continue that tradition. What is it about history in general that you keep coming back to it for your fiction? I think that I'm interested in writing about these remarkable past times where something happened that's almost if if you made it up, it would be completely implausible. You know, Mark Twain said, fiction must be plausible, truth needn't be. And it's these implausible truths of history that, you know, that a, a, a Native American graduated from Harvard in 1665, having learned Latin and Greek fluently. Uh, if I made that character up, that wouldn't be so interesting. But because he actually did that, then it becomes for me a great avenue of exploration. But unfortunately, I can't write a history of that guy because we don't know what what it was like to be him. We don't have any documents that uh, tell us uh, in detail about his experience. So the only way to engage with the material is through an imagined, uh, an imaginative empathy, I guess. When you were a kid, were you really interested in history? No, not really. You know, I was a newspaper reporter for a decade and a half, so I was interested in now. But now you can find out everything. There are no voids. There are no silences. If you do enough research about the present, you can get to the truth. Whereas the past, the historical record falls silent. The line of facts that can be retrieved phrased and you're you're staring into the dark. And so that's where, for me, being creative and being imaginative is the most useful. And what made you make the switch from journalism to fiction? The Nigerian secret police. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was 39, and I was reporting. I, I mean, I loved being a foreign correspondent. You know, it was very exciting, and I thought it was important to bear witness to, you know, what was going on in the world. And uh, and I I was in Nigeria reporting on Shell Oil and how they're in cahoots with the brutal military dictatorship of Sani Abacha and how they'd called in the army to open fire on peaceful demonstrators who were who were protesting that Shell had despoiled their farmlands and extracted all this wealth without paying back to the community even one school or one clinic and when they had a peaceful protest. Shell called for the army, and the army just gunned these people down. So I'd gone there to report on that. And I got arrested and accused of being a spy, and they had me in this horrible, you know, secret police lockup, and I didn't know how long they were going to keep me. And I started to think, you know, if I get sentenced, you know, even to a year or two, I'm 39 and I forgot to have a family. 
<laughs> and so uh, when they deported me after only three days, I went home with a new plan. And uh, our first son was born the following year. And when I had an infant, I didn't want to be going off on long open-ended assignments anymore where I might get thrown back in the slammer. So I needed a new line of work. And that's when I sat down with the idea that had been in my mind since I first uh, happened upon a village in England that had taken the unique decision to quarantine itself rather than have everybody flee and spread the infection when bubonic plague struck. And, and that story had really taken hold of my imagination, so I sat down and tried to write it, and that was my first novel, Year of Wonders. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Geraldine Brooks. Her latest novel is called The Secret Chord. Can you read a passage from a writer that's influenced you? I'd like to read a passage from Annie Dillard. I read Pilgrim at Tinker Creek when I was in my early 20s. That book taught me to look at the world much more closely and to notice things. So I say it's one of the most influential books I ever read, and so I'm just going to read a, a short passage from Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. Another time I saw another wonder. Sharks off the Atlantic coast of Florida There is a way a wave rises above the ocean horizon, a triangular wedge against the sky. If you stand where the ocean breaks on a shallow beach, you see the raised water in a wave is translucent, shot with lights. One late afternoon at low tide, a hundred big sharks passed the beach near the mouth of a tidal river in a feeding frenzy. As each green wave rose from the churning water, It illuminated within itself the six- or eight-foot-long bodies of twisting sharks. The sharks disappeared as each wave rolled toward me. Then a new wave would swell above the horizon, containing in it, like scorpions in amber, sharks that roiled and heaved. The sight held awesome wonders, power and beauty, grace tangled in a rapture with violence. Do you want to say anything else about it? No, I think, you know, her her ability to see and then to use language with the agility of a poet really uh, is is very inspiring to me. Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that you found tricky or something that changed a lot from the first draft. I can read something that changed completely. I can read the uh, original beginning of Caleb's Crossing <laughs> that I threw in the bin. All right. If that would be useful. I had intended to frame that book with a contemporary story. So Caleb's Crossing is about the first Native American graduate of Harvard, a Wampanoag Indian, who was a first contact uh, individual um, who somehow was admitted to Harvard, for which you had to be fluent in Latin in those days because all of the instruction was in Latin. So this boy raised in his own language and culture went on to graduate from Harvard as uh, among the sons of the Puritan colonial elite in 1665. And I intended to tell the story beginning in modern-day Harvard Yard, where there's an archaeological dig trying to recover the location of the Indian College uh, where students like Caleb lived. 
And I decided not to go with that. I decided to keep the story entirely in the 1660s. But here's the original beginning of the novel. If you could hear anger in absolute silence, Silas Shelburne knew that he was listening to it now. He held the cell phone slightly away from his head and leaned against an oak tree, bracing himself. Damp gusts of autumn wind rattled the brown leaves. You assured me, Silas, you as good as promised me that there was absolutely no chance that this would happen. I know, Carol. It's quite unexpected, extraordinary, given. You got our consent, our blessing. We overcame years of suspicion about people like you. And now this. I know, Carol. Honestly, I couldn't be more. I mean, every scrap of scholarship tells us that this is impossible. The importance of burial in hallowed ground. The Puritans were absolutely scrupulous about it. No archaeologist would have considered the possibility at this site of turning up. And yet you have. I think so. Yes, I'm pretty sure of it, but it's not confirmed. And I can't stress how unlikely this is. I'm not trying to justify myself. I just can't. Oh, come off it, silence. Of course you are. The question is, what do you propose to do about it? There's only one thing we can do. It's quite clear. Work stops immediately. The dig is closed, filled in. The project's abandoned. So um, I wrote the novel in the voice of a young Puritan girl on the island of Martha's Vineyard, and she speaks in, as far as I could, reproduce it, the cadence of, the 1660s, and it's a first-person account of her friendship uh, with Caleb and the clashing worldviews of the Wampanoag and the Puritans on Martha's Vineyard at the time. So there is no contemporary thread at all in the novel as it was eventually published. So did you feel like you had to write that to know it was wrong to get to the next place? You know, I had I, I wrote quite a lot of the contemporary story of un, of finding um, finding human remains uh, in the dig, um, and as the framing device for the story, and looking at contemporary relations between the Wampanoag tribes and their views on the treatment of archaeological sites, and then I just realized that. Uh, the novel would have more artistic integrity if it all existed in the time period of, of the 1660s. Where do you write? Well, it, it varies. I have a study, and most of the time I write in a study that looks out over the field where my alpacas are, and they're very soothing to look at. But if it's a beautiful day um, and there's nobody else around, I might go outside and sit under an old apple tree and write out there. Or if it's winter and the house is empty, we have a hearth in the kitchen and it's a very, very warm and lovely sunny kitchen with the fire going. So on a winter's day, I might go and sit at the kitchen table in front of the fireplace and write there. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I like to garden and I like to cook, and I find that I get a lot of good ideas when I'm doing those things. But if I really want to get right away from what I'm working on, I ride my horse, because riding a horse is the most be-here-now thing you can do. 
be here now or be on the ground very soon. (laughs) And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Oh, that's easy. My husband, Tony Horwitz, he is my reader of First and Last Resort. We bounce ideas off each other initially when we're trying to think about what we should work on next, and nothing leaves the house until he's read it. And how have you dealt with rejection? Going back to bed with a bottle of gin? <laughs> no, seriously, I, I, uh, I try and focus on the non-rejection. So if I, get, uh, if I get a horrible review, I try and think of all the nice reviews. And what is your favorite word? Puppies. Do you have puppies? No, but I love puppies. And I also think it's just a wonderful, wonderful um, musical word. And I love all the plosives in it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Geraldine Brooks, author of the novels Caleb's Crossing, Year of Wonders, People of the Book, March, and The Secret Chord. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.